0: It's more than just another radio show. It's a beacon of truth. Fasten your seatbelt and find out why they call Deacon Harold Burke Sivers the dynamic deacon. Join Deacon Harold for a fast paced hour that sheds encouraging light on today's culture. Welcome to Beacon of Truth with your host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers.
1: And welcome to a very special edition of Beacon of Truth. I am H. McKay, always glad to be a part of your day as we continue not only in supporting Deacon when he is on the road, but also giving him a chance when he is traveling to bring you some of these great live, dynamic Deacon moments. And so today we're going to get to do that. While he's in the midst of traveling, we are taking you back to the Building a Legacy Catholic Men's Conference from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's really kind of expounding upon his principles and his ideas uh, from his book, Behold the Man, which you can also get in the EWTNRC catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com. And while you're in the midst of that, we are going to get you right into West Catholic High School, Grand Rapids, Michigan, as we learn to build a legacy with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers on today's Beacon of Truth.
0: Men of God, you are dying. You're on your deathbed and your son is standing before you, what would your last words be to him? Hopefully not, I love you son, because you should be telling your children you love them every day, not waiting till you're almost dead. King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, faced this situation. If you open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2, right at the beginning, Oh yeah, forgot I'm talking to Catholics. Look on with the Protestant next to you. (laughs) When David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. So David's last words to his son Solomon is to be a man. But he doesn't stop there. He just doesn't tell his son he must be a man. He goes on to explain how he must be a man. Keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do. So son, If you want to prosper as king, don't think and act like the ways of the world. You put on what Paul would say later, the mind of Christ. You think and act as a man of God. God's ways, God's statutes, God's commandments. St. Paul would tell us later in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may know what is God's will. That's what he passes on to his son. But he doesn't even stop there. David understands that he will never see his grandchildren. He knows that. So he says, son, when I became king, here's what the Lord told me. And now I pass this on to you so you can pass this on to your children. If your sons take heed of their way and walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you a man on the throne of Israel. So son, he's saying, if you teach your sons and they teach their sons the ways of the Lord, you will not fail. The problem is men, that today we are failing. We are failing our families. We are failing the church and we are failing this culture because we're more worried about what people think about me, what people think about what kind of person I am rather than what God thinks. So we're going to talk about authentic fatherhood and how God is getting us back on course. Now, I'm going to start with a seemingly unusual place, a beautiful document written by St. John Paul II called Mulieris. Dignitatem, on the dignity of vocation of women. In there, he says, women are more capable than men of paying attention to another person. That is true. That is true. Um, and you know, God, we, all, we all know this is true. I mean, when I travel, and I traveled 185,000 miles last year all over the world, and I was in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and the internet doesn't work well, there as it works here and so I went to Skype my family but I could hear them but I couldn't see them and so you know I'm a guy right so when I check in my I travel I say hey hon how's it going I expect to hear one two three four five okay hon that's awesome talk to you later hang up not my wife I call one one a One A, subprime one, subprime two, subprime three, one B, one C. By the time we get to three, I'm done. So she says to me at one point in the conversation, you're not listening to me, are you? And she's right. I wasn't listening. How do they do that? How do they do that? That's why John Paul II is a saint. The man is a mystic, right? He goes on to say, and that the man even though he shares in the parenting relationship, always remains outside the process of pregnancy and the baby's birth. And in many ways, he has to learn his own fatherhood from the mother. I said, whoa, 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 JP! JP, hold up. A man has to learn his fatherhood from the mother, but I thought about it for a second. In a very practical way, that's true, because all of us who are dads in here, where did you find out you were gonna be a father? When your wife said, I'm pregnant, so you learned your fatherhood from the mother. But I think the Pope is a little deeper than that. (laughs) We all know he had an amazing devotion to the blessed mother. And so I think what he's saying is that in a woman's yes, in a woman's fiat, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit that we pray every Sunday is dominum et vivificantem, the Lord and giver of life. So when a woman says yes, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, because by the very nature of how God created a woman, she is a life giver and a life bearer. Even if she never has a child, by her very nature, she is a life giver and a life bearer. So when a woman says yes to that gift, that makes possible the gift of our fatherhood. That's why I think the Pope is saying. So... We've lost our way, how did it happen? In Genesis chapter two, it says the Lord put man in the garden to till and to keep it. The word for till in Hebrew is abad. It means a work that's in the form of service. And to keep is shamar, which means to protect and defend. So what the Lord was doing, he was putting the man in the garden, he was saying, look, I am the landlord, you're the tenant, I'm the owner. You're the steward. I am placing you in charge of my earthly creation. Your job is to till and to keep, to serve, protect, and defend everything I am entrusting to you. He was giving him his mission, his purpose, his calling, serve, protect, and defend. Here's the problem. When it came time to do that, in Genesis chapter three, when the serpent came all up on his wife to destroy her heart, to destroy that relationship of love and life and intimacy and communion, he stood there and said and did nothing while Satan destroyed his family. And we got too many men who are standing by doing nothing while Satan tries to destroy our family, tries to destroy the church, and tries to destroy this culture. We cannot be like Adam that failed in his mission of fatherhood. So how do we get ourselves back on track? St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter five. Now, when I was first ordained as a deacon 15 years ago, you have to start paying attention to the lectionary because you have to preach. And I noticed that whenever this reading came around in the cycle, the lector would invariably choose the short form. Because here's what they didn't want to read. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Or your translation may say, submissive to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of his wife. And then skipping to verse 24. Uh, so let wives be subject in everything. Ooh! Ouch! That grates hard on 21st century ears, doesn't it? But it's verses like this where I love being Catholic, because if Dave Farrell the Second Vatican Council document the Word of God teaches us anything
1: more dynamic deacon moments coming up on today's special edition of beacon of truth i'm ace McKay. we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we'll continue more of our building a legacy from the catholic men's conference in grand rapids michigan and deacon harold berg sivers live on the road so while he's in the midst of traveling we're bringing you some of his great live dynamic moments and that's going to continue next on beacon of truth Welcome back to Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Welcome back to Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. I'm Ace McKay, producer and glad to be sidekick from occasions on time to time. When Deacon is on the road traveling, we bring you some of his live events for a special broadcast. And so that's what today is all about, building a legacy from the Catholic Men's Conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We continue with his challenge to us as men and Behold the Man, which again, available in the E W. TNRC catalog. All you have to do is go to EWTNRC.com and find out more and remember to shop Catholic. Again, EWTNRC.com Continuing more dynamic moments with Dynamic Deacon himself building a legacy on today's Beacon of Truth.
0: That we as Catholics look at the entire content and unity of Scripture. We look at the whole thing not just the verses we like. So if you look at it within context, you have to see what comes before, what comes after. What is the chapter about? What is the book about? What does the Old Testament have to say? We look at everything. So if you look at this pericope, this particular section of scripture in context, it starts in verse 21. Verse 21 says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual subjection of husband and wife, one to the other. Because why? He's talking about covenant relationship. Why is that important? Very simple. We live in a a world right now that says relationships between men and women are contracts, not covenants. A contract is just like you go to the the, the Verizon, whatever. You buy a cell phone, you got to get a contract. That's how we get language like friends with benefits. Hit it and quit it. Bang that chick. And that garbage language that our young people use to describe relationships when they treat each other as objects for pleasure and gratification. That is not who we are. When God wants a relationship with us, He doesn't establish a contract, He establishes a covenant. A contract is an exchange of goods. This is yours, and this is mine. A covenant is an exchange of persons. I am yours. And you are mine. It's making a complete and total gift of yourself to someone. And that someone makes a complete and total gift of themselves back to you in love that is free and faithful and total and fruitful. It's a love that gives everything. It's a love that holds nothing back because Jesus held nothing back of his love for us from the cross. He gave everything and that's exactly what he expects from us. That's how Paul starts. How does he end in verse 31? For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. Why does that sound so familiar? Genesis chapter two. Therefore a man leaves his father and mother clings to his wife and the two become one flesh. That's the context for understanding Paul. Now that we have the proper bookends, we don't have to be afraid of what comes in the middle. Be subject to one another. Wives, be subject to your husbands. The word in Greek for subject to or submissive to is hupotasso. Hupotasso was a military word used by Roman soldiers to describe troops arranged in divisions that place themselves under the mission and direction of a leader, typically a general. So what is St. Paul saying here? Wives, place yourselves under your husband's mission. What is his mission? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ show his love for the church? He He died for her, he gave his life. For her, that's what St. Paul is saying. Wives, place yourselves under your husband's mission because his job is to serve, protect, and defend, to give his life every day to die to himself, to live for you and your children. Or if you're a priest, for your parish family. If you're single, as a witness to this culture. That's who we are. That's what St. Paul is saying. Christ gives us the model. I have not come to be served, but to serve. The greatest among you is the least, is the servant of all. That's the model. Why? Because Christ shows us headship, leadership, and authority is rooted in service. If my wife walked in and you said, Colleen, who is the head of your family? She would have no problem saying he is, pointing to me, because she, she would say his job is to serve me and the children. And she's right. <laughs> she's right. Now, lest you think that I just made this up, like one guy did. He wrote me a letter. Deacon Harold, you're ruining my marriage. When I got married, I showed my wife this verse. And I said, see, the Bible says you're supposed to be subject to me. So if I, told, if I told her, get me a beer, she'd get me a beer. If I told her, jump in the bed, she'd jump in the bed. But now she's watching you on that channel with the nun. <laughs> and now she's telling me that I have to serve her and defend her, what are you saying? So after I explained this to him, I said, Open your Bible, my friend, to Genesis 3:16. Now we all know Genesis 3:15, often called the Proto Evangelium or the First Gospel. That famous verse: I will put enmity, or complete and perfect opposition, between you and the woman, to your seed and her seed. Here's what comes after that, the next verse. To the woman he said, "I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And the word in Hebrew for rule over is malshaw, which means to dominate like a tyrant. So any man that abuses his wife physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, or any other kind of way, that is not God's plan for being a husband and a father. That is a sad and tragic effect of original sin. Paul returns us to the proper understanding of authentic fatherhood, because all of us men in here, we're all called to be fathers, whether that's physical, whether that's spiritual, a priest, or if you're a single, you're a witness of fatherhood to this culture. What does that mean? That means, my young friends who are not married, who are not priests. When you go to a party and the girl is drunk, you call her an Uber to get home safe. You don't take advantage of her. You're facing a culture right now that's looking you in the face and telling you, as a young man, that children in the womb are not real people, they're just blobs of tissue. They're telling you that marriage is something else other than a relationship between one man and one woman and any children they have together, which is the heart, the center, the core, the foundation of civilization, culture, and society. You're being told that boys are not, can be girls and girls can be boys. You're being told by atheists that there is no God. Belief in God is for weak-minded people that need a crutch to get through life. Unless you can see, taste, touch, measure, or quantify something, it's not real. You're being told that old people ain't worth a damn. That if you're old, you're just a burden on your family, you're a burden on society, you're a burden on the healthcare system. We got two choices for you we'll kill you, euthanasia, or we'll give you medication to kill yourself, assisted suicide. That's what we're facing and we need real men, spiritual men, fatherly men to engage that culture and say, it stops here, no further, no further. So all of us are called to be fathers. One line here in in, uh, Ephesians I wanna bring out that Paul says, After he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. When you sanctify something, what does it mean? To do what? To make it holy. How are we making our wives holy, men? How are we sanctifying, making holy our families, men? How are we doing that? Are we praying with our spouses every day? Or... If your wife's on her period, you say, oh, we can't have sex? You could do something else for me and turn your wife into a whore for your pleasure and gratification. Or are you a priest and you're so worried about the collection or people complaining to the bishop that you give weak homilies that sound like Barney the Damn Dinosaur? I love you. You love me. The hell is that? We're getting killed out here. We need, we need to hear the truth, the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, but it's got to be the truth. So we can't sanctify anything if we're not holy ourselves. So we have to deal with sin. We have to deal with that. Now, we Catholics, of course, talk about mortal and venial sin, which comes from the Bible, right? Sometimes the, your Protestant brothers and sisters may hit you up and say, you Catholics like to categorize things and put things in categories. The Bible says all wrongdoing is sin. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So where do we get the teaching on mortal and venial sin? Anybody know? Like uh, Council of Nicaea, 325. Council of Constant- Constantinople, 381. Uh, 381. Uh, Ephesus 431, maybe Nicaea 2, 553, uh, Trent 1545, Vatican 2, 1962. Anybody know where we get the teaching from? Yeah, from the Bible. So open yours to 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, not a mortal sin, he will ask and God will give him life for whose sin is not mortal. There is sin which is mortal. I do not say one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. Bam! Right from the Bible, right from the Word of God, mortal sin and sin that is not mortal, which we simply call venial sin. Now, mortal sin 101, how does it work? In order for a sin to be mortal, three things have to be present together at the same time. Number one, it has to be, the sin has to be grave matter. Grave or serious matter. So. The benchmark is typically violation of one of the Ten Commandments, right?
1: I know it's getting good, but we're going to pause for the cause and get ready for a final segment with Beacon of Truth. Special live edition today from Grand Rapids, Michigan, as he is definitely challenging Catholic men today in building a legacy. Uh, Tapping into the resources from his own book, Behold the Man, again available at EWTNRC.com. I'm H1K. We'll continue more of Dynamic Deacon coming up next on Beacon. Of Truth. Welcome back to Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. And it is a very special edition of Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. While he's in travel mode today, we're getting a chance to bring you some of his live, dynamic moments. And from the Building a Legacy Catholic Men's Conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan, he is continuing in that challenge to Behold the Man, which is his book, available at EWTNRC.com. Before we get into that, we do want to remind you that The Doctor Is In is each and every weekday, 1 Eastern on EWTN Radio as the one and only Dr. Dr. Ray Gurindy, giving you your insights that you need for family, marriage, relationships, a little wit, maybe sometimes musical knowledge. You just never know. Uh, but Dr. Ray Gurindy, always great to check out, not only live, one Eastern on the EWTN radio, but also on demand. Just go to EWTN.com slash podcast. So we continue today's live episode of Beacon of Truth, we love when we get a chance to build a legacy together. So more on location from the Catholic Men's conference in grand rapids michigan on today's beacon of truth
0: so if you go fishing and you catch a fish this big but you tell everybody the fish is this big is that a sin yeah you lied is it a serious sin is it grave matter no it's a fish all right now however when you're going through the commandments and you get to number six, which is adultery. And some of you young guys here say, "Ah, oh, I don't have to worry about adultery, I'm not married. <laughs> Wrong, take a look at the catechism. In that same section, it talks about looking at pornography and then masturbating while you look at the porn. If you do that, right? Or whatever sin you want to commit with full knowledge and deliberate consent of the will. I know what I'm doing is wrong, yet I freely choose to do it anyway. You are, you are in a state of mortal sin. You have lost sanctifying grace, which is a grace you need to get to heaven. If you die in a state of unrepented mortal sin, you are going to hell. And... Believe me, my friends, there is a hell. I don't care what the head of the Jesuit says. He'll find out when he gets there. Hell is real. Jesus talks about hell more in the gospels than he talks about heaven. Why? He doesn't want us to go there. The demons believed in hell in Jesus, Jesus preached about hell. St. Faustina showed visions of hell, the children of Fatima showed vision of hell. And guess what? There were people there. The worst effect of sin, original sin, was death. Death is mavet in Hebrew. It just doesn't mean physical death. It means literally to cut yourself off from God's life. To cut yourself off from the life of God. Think about that for a second. That's worse than death. Because even after death, you got two choices, right? Smoking and non-smoking, right? So why do you have to go to a priest for confession? I got challenged on this once by a Protestant minister. A lot of you have seen me on EWTN, but I also did work about seven or eight years ago for TBN. You know, purple hair, praise the Lord. And they called me. And they said, we want to do some work. I said, you know I'm Catholic, right? They said, yeah, we know. I said, oh, no, you don't know. <laughs> I'm like big C Pope Catholic. They're like, we know. I said, okay. So I got permission from my bishop. And I worked with them for almost a year. And then the Crouches decided I was too Catholic. I tried to tell them. <laughs> so there were a number of Protestant ministers there who did not like the fact that I was there as a Catholic. But I have to say this: I had a lot of interactions with them. What would happen? I'd be coming out from shooting, going to the green room, and on my way, they'd grab me and pull me into an empty classroom or pull me into an empty conference room, and they'd pull out their Bible, pull out my Bible, talk about sola scriptura, sola fide, uh, purgatory, Eucharist, whatever. I mean, whatever topic they of the flavor of the day. We'd have these intense conversations. They were intense, but very respectful. And I have to say. I admire and truly respect how much our prophet brothers and sisters love the word of God, because they truly do. And I learned a lot from them. And they sure enough learned a lot from me. But this one, so what I'm about to tell you now was not typical of my interactions with them. This one Protestant minister didn't pull me, into a hall, didn't pull me out of the hallway. He wanted to do this in the hallway, because I think he was trying to maximize the embarrassment. So he comes up to me, he goes, you're that Catholic deacon, yes, pastor. And you go to a man to confess your sins? Well, not just any man, to the priest. He said, you don't have to go to some man in some dark box to have your sins forgiven. All you've got to do is pray to Jesus. Ah, and the blood of the lamb covers you, Jesus. And the blood of the lamb washes away your sins, Jesus. So I let him finish, and I said to him when he was done, Pastor, how do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven? He said, what? I said, did I stutter? I said, how do you know when you pray to Jesus that the sin is forgiven each and every time? Because if that's the case, what incentive do I have to do anything good? So for example, I could cheat on my wife, I could steal from my employer. I could rob a bank. I could beat somebody over the head. I could do whatever I want. And all I have to do each and every time is just pray to Jesus and each and every time the sin is forgiven? What if I don't feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, love God and love my neighbor as myself? What if I don't do those things? Because every time, I don't have to do that because all I got to do is pray and every time I'm forgiven. That's how it works? And he just looked at me, he goes, You just have to pray to Jesus and the blood of the lamb covers your Jesus and the blood of the lamb washes away your sins and the Holy Spirit fills your heart. You get the feeling in your heart from the spirit. I said, blah, 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 time out, time out. Feeling in your heart? You're basing the forgiveness of sins on how you feel? How do you know that's not acid reflux? I said, Pastor, look, say me and you are friends and after our time together today. We, we, we're no longer speaking. We hate each other. We're no longer speaking. I go home. My wife says, how'd it go today? I say, oh, wait, great except for this thing with the pastor. We're no longer speaking to each other. And a month later, my wife says, hey, did you ever get that thing fixed with the pastor? Are you reconciled? And I said to my wife, I just know in my heart that the rift between me and the pastor has been healed. Do I know it's been healed? Yes or no? No, I don't. What has to happen? I have to have an encounter with him. I have to see him again. I have to talk to him. I have to Skype him or FaceTime or email or text him. There has to be some communication between us to know for sure that the rift has been healed. That's why, Pastor, I said, God no longer wanted to be far away from us. He no longer wanted to speak through great men in the Bible. He no longer wanted to speak through the prophets. So John tells in his gospel, John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Cause pastor, he wanted to touch us with his own hands. He wanted to love us with his own heart. He wanted personal relationship. So pastor, if you're saying that all you gotta do is pray to Jesus, then Jesus who is God must have said out of his mouth, pray to me and your sins are forgiven. Fine, sola scriptura, show me the scriptura. Show me the Bible where God says out of his own mouth, Pray to me and your sins are forgiven. Show me the verse. So he starts flipping through his Bible and he flips to the back. I said, I don't know what you're looking for back there. You don't see Paul on the cross for my sins. You don't see Peter or James or John on the cross for my sins. I asked you to show me where Jesus says, pray to me and your sins are forgiven. And he couldn't find the verse. Now, later on, I was looking. I said, what was he looking for? Here's where I think he was going. First John chapter 1, starting at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I said, amen. All this verse says is that an important component of forgiveness of sin is confessing the sin. It doesn't say anything about how the sin is forgiven. So I said, uh, Pastor, can't find it? I said, Well, uh, let me show you what Jesus says. I said, Open up your Bible. I said, You know, the one you got there with the seven books missing. <laughs> I said, But you got this one. Open up, I said, to John chapter 20. So, John chapter 20, verse 19, the day of the resurrection, they're in the upper room. Ten apostles are there. Why only ten? Judas hung himself, and we know the first time that Thomas wasn't there. So the Lord comes in and says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. Why does John include that detail about breathing? Very simply this. The word to create in Hebrew is bara. The only person that creates anything in the Bible, the only subject of that verb is God. God is the only one that creates. There's only twice that God creates by breathing. The first one is in Genesis chapter 2. Where it says he took man of dust of the soil and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adama nishmak kaim in the Hebrew. God took the breath of his life and poured that into us. The only other place where God creates by breathing is right here. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that got breathed into us at the beginning of our existence. The same Holy Spirit that would come upon the church in Pentecost. He breathed that Holy Spirit and he empowered them by saying, receive the Holy Spirit if you plural in, he, in Greek, by the way. If you forgive the sins of any that are forgiven, if you retain the sins of any that are retained, who was he talking to, pastor? He said, the apostles. I said, amen. So what the Bible says, what God says out of his own mouth, he gives specific and direct authority to forgive sins in his name to those first priests. Why did he do it that way? Why didn't Jesus just say, make it easy? Fellas, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Hey, if anybody has a any problem with sin, you tell them to pray to me, I'll take care of it. He doesn't do that. Instead, he breathes the power of God's life into them and then gives them specific and direct authority to forgive sins in his name. Why, Pastor, did he do that? He said, I'm not sure. I said, okay, not a trick question here. What religion were all those guys? Jewish. No, they're not Catholics yet. (laughs) Jewish, right? And so in the Jewish mind, who's the only person that can forgive sins? God. So I said, when the Jewish people want their sins forgiven, what did they do? He said, I think they offer sacrifice. I said, that's right. Open up your Bible. I said, Leviticus chapter 5. Now, the first four verses of Leviticus chapter 5 lists a whole bunch of sins. Verse 5 says this. When a man is guilty of any of these, the sins of verses 1 through 4, he shall confess the sin he has committed. So look at there. The Old Testament says you have to confess the sin. We just saw in 1 John chapter 1, it also says confess your sin. So the Old Testament and New Testament are in agreement that an important component of the forgiveness of sins is the confession of the sin. But there are a few more words here. The first one is and... You have to confess your sin and he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for the sin he has committed. A female of the flock, lamb, sheep, or goat. Why female? Why not a male lamb? I mean, for the Passover, it was a male lamb, which he did on the cross. Why here for a sin offering a of female lamb, a sheep, or goat? Remember, females give life. And when you sin, you have cut yourself off from God's life. So the female is the one that gives life, so you have to use a female here and as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Who? Who? I thought only God can forgive sins. He does through the priest. I said, pastor, if that was the only verse, you might have a, you might have a, a, a point, but let's keep reading. If they cannot afford the lamb... Then he shall bring for his guilt offering for his sin, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. If they can't even afford that, they were destitute. He shall bring as his offering for the sin he has committed a tenth of an epath of fine flour. So an epath is 4.99 dry gallons. A tenth of an epath is called an omer. So he would bring this omer of fine flour before the priest and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion. Ooh, I wish I had time. Memorial portion here is extremely critical for understanding the holy sacrifice of the mass. But anyway, thus the priest shall make atonement for his sin, which he has committed in any of these things and he shall be forgiven. Who? Pastor? If those were the only two verses, you might have a case. Let's keep, so I went, I don't have time now, but verse, I have all the verses listed in my book, by the way, verse after verse, after verse, after verse, whenever they wanted their sins forgiven, they went to the priest. Now Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So we no longer have to bring a lamb or a sheep or a goat, why? He is the Agnus Dei Quitoli picata Mundi. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we no longer have to bring it What do we bring now? Ourselves, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our anger, our lusts, our illicit desires, our greed, our envy. We bring all of that before the priest. Now, of course, we go to confession. The priest says, Jesus absolves you from your sin, right? The priest says, Jesus absolves you. Some of you are nodding. That means you ain't been to confession in a long time. That's not what the priest says. The priest says, I absolve you. How dare the priest say that? A priest can only say that if he was given authority by God himself. And that's exactly what happened in John chapter 20. So God empowered... Now, who's forgiven the sin? God's forgiven the sin. Christ is forgiving the sin through the priest. Why? He knew he was going to ascend to the Father. But he still wanted to touch us with his own hands. He still wanted to love us with his own heart. And so he gave us priests. So when you hear the words of absolution from a priest, the sin, your sin is forgiven... The slate is wiped clean. You can start again. If you haven't been to confession for a long time, now is the time to go. Because I guarantee you, if you don't, some of you, you better hope you don't get into a car accident and die. Because you're going to hell. Because you don't get to decide what mortal sin is. You don't get to decide what it means to be Catholic. I I don't have to. I could just be a good person. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because I can't find any place in this Bible where Jesus says, just be good and you'll get to heaven. I can't find it. So get the... What does Ezekiel say? I want to end the, the, the little discussion here about... I was supposed to talk to my father, but the Holy Spirit was telling me as I was preparing for the talk to talk about confession. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21. If a wicked man turns away from all his sins, which he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now, what do you mean we're not gonna die? We're all gonna die. Remember what death means, right, in Hebrew. He will not cut himself off from God's life if you confess your sins and have that sin forgiven. You won't cut, we're all gonna die, but you won't, you won't mavet, you won't cut yourself off from God. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. God doesn't remember your sin. The problem is God forgets we don't. That's the issue. For the righteousness he has done, he shall live. Cast away from you all your transgressions against me and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord. So turn and live. Turn back to the Lord and truly begin to live as men of God, as fathers that Christ calls us to be. Now, with the few minutes I have left remaining, I want to just tell you one of the things that a husband and father has to do is to create stability and harmony in his family. That means you cannot be working at a job that takes away from your family's uh, benefit. So for example, give you an example what I'm talking about. If you think your job is so important, try this, die. Do you really think that whoever you work for is going to say, oh no, John is dead. We have to to now sell our multi-billion dollar corporation and liquidate all of our assets and fire our tens of thousands of employees and sell all of our stock because there's no way we can continue this business because John died. Are you kidding me? They will mourn you for three days. Then they will hire somebody to take your place. Where somebody can't take your place is in your house with your wife and kids because that's time you never get back. I know that from experience, my friends. I spent 23 years in law enforcement. My last 11 years as a chief, uh, campus, I was in campus law enforcement most of my career. I, when I became the chief at the University of Portland, I was the youngest Division I chief in the country. I became the president of the Western Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. After 9-11, the International Association sent all the regional presidents to Fletsy, to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, for a training on threat assessment. I got really good at it. So they sent me for advanced training in Quantico, at the FBI Academy, where I trained with Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, Naval Intelligence, State Department guys on advanced techniques for assessing threats. I was teaching contemporary threat assessment methodology at the police academy teaching police officers and first responders how to identify and respond to threats of terrorism. I got so good at that, that private businesses, school districts and colleges and universities were contacting me about doing this, what's called target hardening for them. I would go in and evaluate their processes, procedures, methods to make them harder targets against violence and terrorism. And I was making a lot of money. I was charging them $300 an hour for me to come in to, because think about it, it's cheaper to pay me than to have somebody come shoot your place up. Now you have to pay millions of dollars in lawsuits. I was making a ton of money, man. And that I, I was I was working 70 hours a week, 10 to 12 hour days, six days a week. How did I justify that? I took the kids to Disneyland every year. I took the kids to Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco. We went to New York City one year, Museum of Natural History. Statue of Liberty, Times Square, all the great stuff. And I said, well, what a great dad I'm doing. What a great job I'm doing, huh? Yeah. And so the, God called me to leave to go do this. And when I felt the Lord call me, I'm like, no, nah, Lord, there's no way you could be asking me to leave this, to do that. How am I supposed to make money talking about Jesus? <laughs> I got a family, I got a mortgage. So I ignored it. And when you ignore God's will for long enough, he has a way of getting your attention. The way he got my attention was through my boss. My boss was a vice president at the university. He was also a parishioner in my parish. He loved what I did. He supported what I did. He had a stroke. Had to retire early. They brought in another guy who didn't like what I was doing. So I go home to my wife. She goes, how'd it go with the new guy? I said, our uh, arrangement here is going to come to an end. What are you going to do? I don't know. Uh... I got to pray about it. You know, maybe I should look at this thing over here. I keep asking to speak everywhere and to write books, but I don't have time because she goes, wait, wait, wait. You're not leaving your job. You know how much money you make? We have a mortgage. We have kids in Catholic school. What are you thinking? I said, well, hon, I'm not necessarily going to leave the job. I need to figure out what God wants me to do. She said, what God wants you to do is keep your job. <laughs> but that started a year-long process of serious discernment. I started going to adoration from that time all the way till now, adoration every week without fail, which I'll talk about uh, in more detail a little bit later. But then I knew in adoration God was calling me to leave, but then I was still scared because I'm holding on to that paycheck. I was holding on to the paycheck. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I forgot God has to do it, not me. So then I said, let me confirm. So I talked to three friends of mine for my wedding party, guys that know me well, that would tell me the truth and not what I want to hear, all of them said, you should have left a long time ago. Oh, great. <laughs> so then I talked to three guys who, who I met on the speaking circuit, who, who were f- good friends of mine, but became brothers to me. Father Mitch Pacwa, Father Larry Richards, and Patrick Madrid. I reached out them and said, hey guys, God has called me to jump into this thing full time. Will you help me? I know how the consulting model works. I don't know how the speaking model works. And each one of those three guys said, deacon, whatever you need. And I love those guys today like brothers. They were like brothers to me. And so finally, my wife. So we go out to dinner. This is a year later now, a year later, eight months. I knew God was calling me to leave. It took me another four months before I got the courage. Here's what made the difference. We went out to dinner, two and a half hours we spoke, the most serious conversation of our marriage. And my wife said, you know what? God is calling you to leave. And after all, God's in charge of finances. We should do it. When she said those words to me, all of the fear, all of the anxiety, All of the doubt melted away.
1: Great insights from the Dynamic Deacon himself and on the road again as we get a chance to bring you more of his live events. You can always check out more of these when you go to EWTN.com slash podcast and simply click on Beacon of Truth. But back in studio, next available time that we get to be together. I'm Ace McKay. Thanks for spending time with us as we continue more Dynamic Deacon moments on Beacon of Truth. If you want to send emails or be a part of the show, make sure you do that beacon at ew wtn.com and we'll see you next time.